0: This is episode 27 of Aloha Mora for April 21st, 2013. Alohomora. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Aloha Mora. We've got a really great show in store for you today. I'm Caleb Graves,
1: I'm Rosie Morris. I'm Laura Riley, and here we have a very special fan guest, um, an Alohomore listener of ours, um, Piera. So welcome, Piera.
2: Thank you so much, guys, for inviting me on the show. Actually, I never thought I could be on the show. I even even thought about uh, sending an audio file or anything. I just, hey, Kat read my, my stuff on uh, my DeviantArt page, and uh, she sent me an invitation for to be uh, on the show. So I'm really excited to be here.
1: We're very excited to have you. Um, So tell us, where are you from?
2: Uh, I'm from uh, Montréal in Canada. So I speak French and English. Uh, French is my uh, first language. And I started reading the books around maybe 16 or 17. So I'm 29 now. So it's been a while I'm reading the, the stuff. And actually, I started reading the books in French. I've read the first uh, four books in French, and then I switched uh, in English when uh, Order of the Phoenix came out. I just read the books uh, in English for this moment on. How do those experiences
1: uh, uh, differ between reading um, it in the different languages?
2: Actually, I like it much, much better in English. I, I prefer the books in their original uh, language, and in French, they change a lot of names. So yeah. Harry is still Harry, but uh, Hogwarts is, is a different name. It's called Poudlard, and it's, it's, very, it's kind of silly because when I switched to English, I was having a, a bit of a hard time to, to find who is doing what and who is who in the, in, in the series. And all the houses have different names in, in French.
0: It's like starting a whole new series over. Yeah,
2: yeah. And actually, Snape uh, is still Severus, but his family name is different. Huh.
0: So another that that makes me wonder because what we always do it toward the end of a book is we talk about the different covers for different books. So yeah. The chapter, the book. I
2: love the French covers. Yes, the French cover are very are very pretty. I've uh, I have the I've got all the books uh, in English, but I bought the uh, the French edition of the first book because mm-hmm. I thought the cover was just so great yeah. with the uh, Hermione, Ron, and Harry in front of the hogwarts that kind of looks like a, a muggle school behind right but uh it's really nice and i i had it signed by uh, john granger at leaky last summer oh it was so really excited I... oh was so you were so at leaky last summer yes it was my first leaky i had so much fun i'm definitely going back to portland uh, this summer to be there what's your uh house before we always have to ask that oh my house um i think i'm a bit uh undecided between Ravenclaw and Slytherin, but if I had to go to uh, purely on the personality level, I'd definitely be uh, Ravenclaw. Hmm. But if I go for my allegiance and favorite characters, it'd probably be Slytherin, though. I'm a big fan of Snape and the Malfoys. Awesome.
1: Very interesting.
2: And I really like that Rowling actually puts a lot of uh, French things in her books, like toward yeah. uh, words. I think she was a French teacher at some point, and just the the name of Tom Riddle's uh, Voldemort is actually a very French kind of sound, and it's really fun because I can uh, analyze this name and uh, found really different meanings from what we fir- uh, first hear about it. Because when you analyze Voldemort, it can also mean uh, stealing death, or either it could be death itself flying. So it really uh has a new uh, dimensions to when you're reading the books to what voldemort wants to do and what are his aims and what actually what type of character he is interesting cool
0: all right well we do have a very huge announcement um to make today We've been leading up to this announcement with um, our favorite moments over the past few weeks. Myself, Rosie, Laura, Cat, and Noah all shared ours. We posted the last one yesterday. We've been leaving you a few hints in those posts. Um, some of you may have figured it out, but our big announcement is that for the past year, the show has been following the format of two chapters for every episode. Every episode um, runs every two weeks or new episode every two weeks. But the big change is that we will now be going to one episode per week discussing one chapter per episode. Woohoo! <laughs> Yay! So we're really excited about this. Um, we think change is always a good thing, and we think it's going to be a really cool way to um, be with you guys more often. Obviously, we'll be there once a week. Our shows will be slightly shorter um, because we're, we're talking less about less content since we're only doing one chapter. But we're also bringing a new element. Um, because it will not be just um, Noah, Kat, Rosie, and myself as the lead hosts. We are bringing on two more lead hosts. One is Laura, um, who's on here today. So we're excited that she's joining us. And we are also um, being joined by Eric Skoll, um, longtime host of Mogulcast and several other podcasts. And he's guested a few, here a couple of times. So we're really excited that we will now have six lead hosts joining you guys every week. Um, We'll have different combinations of hosts, but we're really excited about this starting up.
3: We hope this means that you guys can listen to us more often um, kind of in shorter bursts so that you don't have to sit through a whole two or even, as last week showed, um, (laughs) three-hour podcast each time and that you guys really enjoyed the kind of detailed chapter analysis that you guys seem to love so much, and we do too.
0: Right. So by the time this episode that we're recording now comes out, um i believe yeah it looks like we will be recording that first one chapter episode later in that week and the following um that next weekend will be our first release so it will we will be hitting the ground running with this
1: all right so before we start just a reminder to fully appreciate this episode and all the details that we're going to dive into make sure you have read chapters 15 and 16 of prisoner of azkaban which are
3: uh the quidditch final and professor trelawney's prediction But as usual, before we go into chapters 15 and 16, we are going to do our recap of our discussion from last week. So we were um, talking about chapters 13 and 14 um, and these are the comments that you guys have sent in in reaction to that episode. Um, Firstly, thank you to everyone who has commented on my behalf about the scampered and scarpered issue that they were talking about um, during the episode. And yes, scarpered is a perfectly normal British word that just means kind of legging it or running away. Um, Thank you to everyone that said rosie would have said this but this is what is happening so um proof that you really do need a brit on these shows (laughs) um in the meantime however on the forums we have got actually all of our comments are from the forums today um but bravenclaw has said um in regards to the discussion on umbridge and draco's patronus casting abilities um they say i think a pure heart can't have impure intentions I believe Dolores is, a pu- is pure of heart because in her eyes she has pure intentions. I also think Draco can't produce a Patronus not because he is impure of heart, but because he himself doesn't trust himself when it comes to his intentions. As is exposed in the sixth book, he is immensely conflicted and uncertain. Maybe due to his 16-year-old murder attempt, he never fully trusted his own judgment again. Due to his hesitance, he can't believe in himself to procure a Patronus. What do you guys think? I think
1: that's really interesting.
0: That's a good point. I mean, last last episode, I I said that um, I think Draco can't really make the full Patronus because it takes a lot of magical skill, and it's a, it's pretty you know rare that Harry is able to do, it and that's why it's such a big deal he can. But I think you know this actually plays into that because if he doesn't have that firm security and confidence in what he's doing, he's never going to be able to stir it up to create a full Patronus. So I dig it.
1: Yeah, I think um yeah, I think especially that Umbridge is able I think able to produce a Brutonus. Yeah, I have to agree that it has nothing to do with being um could totally pure of heart because she clearly isn't. So, I think this is a pretty solid
3: explanation. Uh Indigo on the forums also goes into this and says, "I've always maintained the opinion that if someone believes with their heart, that they are acting for the best, then no matter what they do, they can't be considered evil or even bad. Imagine a small child picking up a fish from the water. That child doesn't know that picking up the fish will hurt it. They think that the fish might want some fresh air. Would you call that child bad or evil? No, they are doing what they think is best. Intentions are very important. If Umbridge truly thought that ignoring the problem and stopping Harry's story from being heard was the best thing to do, then surely she can't be considered bad. Her intentions were good, even if she did make the wrong choice. Hmm... I wouldn't go as yeah. far as
1: say umbridge isn't bad, but I do feel <laughs> like she genuinely believes that what she's doing is right. But that not the torture aspects of what she does. Like that's that can't be justified, I don't think, as like, you know, well this is right, but I don't know. Yeah, I agree. But her her just being like a disciplinary, like strict, that's valid as much as, as even though it's unpleasant.
3: Yeah. So the the intentions idea um that let her create uh, Patronus is yeah that that's fine but um her kind of methods about going about it and her her kind of attitude towards other people tips her on the scale of, you know, bad or evil.
2: I think the the Patronus is also related a lot to uh, your will to live and your determination in life and we know that uh Umbridge was really she, she had lots of uh, goals to, to accomplish in the, the Wizarding World in the Ministry. So we can say, even though I tend to believe that Rowling just messed up and didn't make sense in Deathly Hallows about the Patronus, but if we, we go that way, maybe because it's, she's very a determined person, that she managed to create a proper Patronus, not necessarily because she's good of heart or not. Because I think Draco is a much better person than Umbridge.
3: Okay, so on another topic from last week, um, H.P. Allison wrote in about James, James's life debt, saying that Dumbledore was actually the one who raised the idea in Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone by telling Harry that James had saved Snape's life. But H.P. Allison thought that Dumbledore was either stretching the truth or lying. I doubt that Snape owed any allegiance to James or felt very bad about his death. It was all for Lily. His actions in Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone, were motivated by his desire to protect Harry for Lily's sake.
0: I totally agree. I That's an excellent point. Because we, like, sometimes we take for granted that Dumbledore is always, you know, like, altruistic, and, or not altruistic, that's not the word I meant. Um, but, like, always truth-telling and not without a flaw in his, his, what he's saying. And obviously we know later in the series that it's not the case. So, I agree.
3: I've always assumed that it was about Lily as well. I mean, fr- uh, from knowing about the the story um, between Snape and Lily, I guess it can't be always known because we only found that out later in later books, but I never really assumed that it was all because James saved Harry's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting that Dumbledore would have kind of planted this idea in Harry's head early to try and, you know, build a bridge between the two of them.
1: Now, now this is something... Um... I'm I'm not even sure I totally understood the first time reading it. Like now this is spoiler to going to, to death to Deathly Hallows. Um with Pettigrew having the life debt uh debt now um that it it kinda made it seem like he was almost forced to, to do what he did because of that life debt. That is it is there an actual um tie to that, like they have to protect like Snape has to protect her because of
3: that life debt um, you mean, like, uh, Pettigrew, when... Just before Pettigrew dies, he releases Harry?
1: Yeah, I just didn't know if there was something, like, in the same way, like, the love bond, like, is an actual, like, yeah. physical protection, um, rather than just being some abstract something. If the life debt was something, like, that they actually, like, had to, you know, be in debt to and not just ignore it. Like
3: an unbreakable vow.
1: Yeah, sort of. Um, just yeah. something that he wouldn't even have the option to just ignore it. It's just because he... Even if he didn't want to?
3: I don't think so. I think guilt is a very, very powerful force. um, And I think that comes into play um, as strongly as love as a force. Mm, Um, But I don't think there's any magical relation to it. Right. Okay.
2: Yeah. I think Snape just saved Harry because it was the right thing to do. Snape may not like Harry, but he doesn't want him dead. Right.
3: So also from H.P. Allison, um, on a related note, um, there was a comment that said, one thing I've always wondered about is the idea of James saving Snape's life. Snape and everyone else always talks about the incident as a matter of life and death, but you'd think that Snape would have just been bitten and turned into a werewolf. I know that werewolves can sometimes kill, as we see in Harry in Half-Blood Prince, um, but that was a five-year-old boy and not a capable teenager. Um, I... Think that werewolves are meant to be incredibly brutal. They they bite to kill and eat rather than just bite to create new werewolves, right? Um, which is slightly different from what Grayback do- did when he kind of turned Lupin, um, which is deliberately put himself next to child- next to a child so that he would be able to bite and turn, right? To kind of create his new werewolf race. Um, so I think it was a matter of life and death at that point
2: hmm I agree. And also, uh, Snape got out of there alive and unharmed by the Lupin. But what if Snape had shot something, some spell at uh, Lupin, and killed him while he was in, the, in his werewolf form? I don't think he would have gone to Azkaban. Probably not, because he was yeah. actually defending himself.
0: Probably some self-defense claim would come up.
2: Yeah. Which in itself is really sad.
3: Hmm. Um. So, Loomis Night Three on the forum says, uh, in relation to Dementors and Horcruxes, I don't think that Voldemort's soul is actually attached to Harry's own soul. I believe this came up in reference to whether or not a Dementor's kiss on Harry would take the Harry Horcrux with it. The thing is, Horcruxes are not dependent on other souls to survive; they are dependent on the vessel that they live in, and when that is destroyed, that is ultimately. What stops the life of the Horcrux? In this case, the vessel would be Harry's body, not his own soul. So if the Dementor took Harry's soul away, presumably the Harry Crux would remain intact and left behind since Harry's body is okay. Hmm. I think I agree with this one. Um, And that raises an interesting zombie parallel. Yeah, would I... Harry then become a, <laughs> a Voldemort zombie?
0: Right, yeah. I, I think I agree too because, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think, one, we still don't know enough about, like, I mean, this was, we've discussed this a lot, but, like, what actually happens to, you know, the body whenever the soul is taken away by the Dementor's kiss? But, you know, I definitely agree that as long as his, like, bodily function is intact, um, that I think the Horcrux is, Horcrux remains there. I agree.
1: Yeah, um, this whole, yeah, obviously what Caleb just said, we don't know a lot about this whole how this whole thing works and that it's yeah it's pretty complicated i think but i have to agree with this writer that um i don't yeah i don't necessarily think that it's the soul is that voldemort's soul is actually attached to harry's like own personal soul
2: yeah because i think the the part of uh voldemort's soul that instant into harry doesn't mix with harry's soul at all because we know harry has his own personality and he's not actually invaded by uh, by Tom Riddle's evil soul inside him. So if he got kissed by Dementor, probably only Harry's soul would get away, but uh Voldemort's bit of soul would still stay in his head.
1: Now what now that raises um something interesting in that if if only Harry's soul was removed, but Voldemort's now Voldemort's soul is the only part that's there, would, um, rather than just being completely vacant, like um, other people that get the Dementor's Kiss, would Harry kind of become Voldemort? like
3: Because now that's the only part of him that's there. I think I've discussed in the past that I don't think that a single Horcrux can become a full right. version of that person. So like he would be a fractured version of Voldemort, but not... The, the whole scary dark lord figure,
2: um, yeah I think I think you would need actually the uh, maybe something like the riddle diary to take form I think the the bit of soul needs the memories related to this life to take form so since uh, Harry has his own memories I don't think uh, Voldemort's bit of soul would actually match with those memories.
3: One thing that is interesting in the concept of the the two individual souls in the, in the same body though is. You said that the the two souls are very distinct and that Harry has his own personality, but there is a certain amount of kind of bleed through between the two. the the idea of Harry being able to speak Parseltongue, um, the the flashes of memory and all that kind of thing, um, the connection between the two.
2: I think the Malt is a part of his magical, uh, potential, but not necessarily something related to uh, his soul or uh, a trait of character, for example. That Tom Riddle, uh, for example prefer to do things on his own and as but compared to Harry Harry as soon as he discovers something he tells Ron and Hermione about it, rather than Tom Riddle being a more secretive person
3: yeah okay, so maybe would you need two Dementors kisses to get rid of two souls in one body
0: (laughs) oh man, that would be pretty insufferable (laughs) (laughs) possibly so though
3: because there is still ultimately a soul within a body that could be removed,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: Oh. Yeah, and and if what if the reason um what if the reason that the dementors are so attracted to Harry is because they are sensing Voldemort's soul inside him? It's like double soul. He's like
3: a feast in one
2: person.
0: Oh dear. Yeah. We're taking this to a place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because Ginny was also very uh w- was very shocked and upset by the dementor visit in the train. I was reading the the chapter last night and she's just a almost as in bad shape as Harry is when they get out of the train. Yeah, she is. So it's probably a bit, maybe she relieved a bit like the the events of uh, the Chamber of Secrets.
3: Yeah, I think we mentioned that when we discussed that chapter that um, the the possession has definitely kind of left a shadow of something bad in Ginny that no one else picks up on, which is really sad. Okay, and to round out the comments from last week, we've got Indigo saying, By the way, I do think that Flitwick was literally teaching the doors to recognise a picture of Sirius. At least I think he was trying to, but maybe the doors weren't really listening. <laughs> These are doors that you have to tickle to open, doors that pretend to be walls... Or sorry, there are doors that you have to tickle to open, doors that pretend to be walls and vice versa, and staircases that move, so why not doors with a learning capacity? Guys, it's Hogwarts. The trees kill people. They attempt to poison toads. Innocent mandrakes are slaughtered. None of the teachers are qualified and an evil killer snake can roam the school for months without being noticed. Classes for doors are nothing here.
0: <laughs> I think <mean>, this, per- <laughs> Indigo, I think you're buying into Noah's mind a little too much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, maybe but- it's
3: a secret personality of Noah who's just commenting on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh <my laughs> I would not put it past him. <laughs>
3: it's most definitely
1: the case but uh yeah no i don't understand what's hogwarts deal in um insisting to get all the stubborn uh furnishings for the castle (laughs) like like just because it's a wizarding school doesn't mean we have to have to have a magical door that won't do what it's told like (laughs) i'm pretty sure that the task can be accomplished way more simpler by using a mungle door
2: yeah that would be much more simpler and what if the door doesn't like your face it just won't let you into the class (laughs) <laughs> so, is, is would, would that be an acceptable excuse for not showing up into a class? Like, well, the door didn't like me or didn't recognize me, so I, I, I had to go uh, hang out in a common room or something like that. Yeah, what if because if he's
1: teaching him to recognize serious, if you were just like a little a little scruffy that day, if you looked someone, <laughs> just the Dementors start swarming, the door is screaming—it's not a pretty sight. You're but apart trying- from anything else,
3: this is a school that teaches transfiguration, including you know, like, disguise and stuff, a picture of Sirius, you know, he could easily change his appearance so it wouldn't look like that. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> just, he just wears one of those, like, mustache glasses. Like, <laughs> and that's completely sufficient. Come on, Dawes. it's definitely not me.
1: <laughs> Alright, so now we're going to discuss our special feature from last week, which was What If. So, uh, we discussed a lot about the Marauder's Map, um... This comes from our forums from Charmsky1467, says, Personally, I think that the map is protected from the common rooms to destroy it, like mud, fire, water, dirt, tearing, etc. Lupin has been compared to Hermione and intellect from their respective groups. I feel that Hermione would know how to protect her books from those common nuisances, so Lupin would have thought to protect the map. Especially when they used the map to get out of Hogwarts and then changed into animals, which as animals they were more likely to cause harm to the map.
0: Yeah, this so this comes from our what if question from last time, which said, what if Snape had burned the map right as Lupin walked in, um, effectively destroying it?
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's a completely valid thing uh, to kind of even in the way Hermione during the Quidditch tournament simply does like a waterproof spell to Harry's glasses and saves the day. Um, I'm sure the same that same thing could probably be applied not even just to water but just to repelling. Anything that could be harmful.
3: Yeah. I would very much like to learn the spells to cast on my books so that they yeah. wouldn't fall <sighs> apart. <laughs> just a more on my like iPhone, just have it like be hovering yeah. to never
1: fall downstairs <laughs> or fall into the sinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so this next comment comes from Phoenix and the Flame. It says, So say so say Crookshanks does actually kill scabbers. Will they have all found a dead Peter Pettigrew in the boys' dormitory? They may not have put two and two together, that Pettigrew was Scabbers, but a full body of Pettigrew instead of just a finger, might be enough pr- to proof to exonerate Sirius, or at least take his side of the story more seriously. No pun intended. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: also,
1: don't... Uh, also, I don't really think that Crookshanks would have intentionally killed Scabbers. He has a degree of intelligence. He knew from his communication with Sirius that the rat wasn't really a rat. I understand we don't know... What don't know the degree to which Crookshanks knew the truth. How well can an an animagus dog communicate with a half-neasle? But if he did know that Sirius was innocent and and Pettigrew was the reason for his imprisonment, but on the other hand, we do know Sirius wanted him dead, so maybe Crookshanks would have thought he was doing him a favor. Right. So this is all, I guess, just about... Crookshanks, what degree his intelligence and communication is. I don't necessarily think it's very high. I have. I think that last point is probably what it is that um, I don't think he, Sirius was able to tell Crookshanks the whole story and have him comprehend. I think it was more just like, this rat's bad, like, go do something <laughs> about it. So yeah. um,
0: This just burned from a very basic question of what if Crookshanks had eaten scabbers? Um, but yeah, I, I agree that <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure, if given the opportunity, Crookshanks would have gobbled that sucker up, so...
3: I don't think he was ever planning to eat him. I think he was planning to capture him and take him to Sirius. Oh,
0: man. I mean...
2: <laughs> um, I think if Crookshanks managed to figure out that uh, Scabbers was uh, some wizard in Animagus form, he probably he saw as well that... Uh, the dog was also serious in Animegu's form. Maybe not serious himself, but he knew that the dog wasn't really a dog; it was actually a wizard. So there's probably um, some sort of really basic level of intelligence, maybe uh, mental communication between Crookshanks and Sirius as a dog, because Crookshanks actually managed to steal uh, Neville's paper with all the, the passwords written on it. So he knew that this paper contained the the password, He didn't steal his portion homework or any other paper uh, lying around. So we knew that the passwords were written on that paper. That's pretty scary because crookshanks can read. <laughs> yeah.
3: I think measles are supposed to have a higher level of intelligence than normal cats. I think I read somewhere that they were supposed to be, you know, the cats that are worshipped in Egypt and all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. He's um, only
3: half measles, let remember. But
0: yeah, still, that's a, little, that's a step above still, a normal cat.
3: Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know... People, wizards in Animagus form would smell different from normal animals. They would have like a wizardy smell rather than the animal smell. Um, so I'm sure that animals can tell the difference. Maybe.
0: Alright, so now it's time to get your answers from last episode's question of the week. And the question was The word stupid is used pretty loosely to describe Crab and Goyle. What is the literary point of Crab and Goyle in the series? What do they represent in the books? Is it possible there is more depth to these characters that Joe has hidden along the way? Or are they purely just bullies that are non-important? And we got quite a bit of good comments from you guys on the main site. The first one comes from Kitty Autumn, which the comment says, I think that the literary point of Crab and Goyle is to show contrast in the sidekicks of two major characters. Crabbe and Goyle are seen as the sidekicks to Draco, while Ron is seen as something of a sidekick to Harry. However, what shows the difference is the complexity of the characters. Crab and Goyle don't show much sign of reluctance to Draco during the series, especially in earlier books, and have that brutish follower kind of personality. While Ron willingly helps Harry throughout the series in a variety of ways, even though he also ends up having disputes with Harry. As the series progresses, we see that Ron isn't just that, quote, sidekick.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting that it is kind of... Um, and as much as I don't even like referring to Hermione as a sidekick because she's the best, but, you know, it's kind of two trios and that kind of stark comparison between them. Um, you know, it, it makes it... It's a good comparison to see. Even just the the intelligence, like Hermione is obviously super intelligent, uh Ron can stand his own and more so than Crab and Goyle. Um so it kinda just makes him seem like much more competent of a trio. Whereas Malfoy's kind of on his own in scheming and kind of just I always picture him being like I, maybe the movies have done this, like like God Crab and Goyle, like keep up. <laughs> like because they're just not comprehending things that are happening.
2: And I was so I would not really trust anything that Crabbe and Goyle said. I think this thing works that way. Mmm seeing that level of advantages I wouldn't trust this so much whereas that uh, Harry and Ron actually Hermione is to Harry run Ron some sort of google search I mean you just throw her something and she tells you everything she knows about it <laughs> yeah um and I think the Crabbe and Goyle versus Ron and Harry are very uh, a typical uh, demonstration of the difference between alliances and friendship of Slytherin house versus Gryffindor house. That's uh, Slytherin are much more uh, business type of uh, relationship. That like you ally to, you you follow these people because they think. You think they can lead you somewhere, whereas in Gryffindor, it's really more uh, kind of emotional and uh, compatibility of character. And that someone you actually admire the person you're following with and you're very much uh, loyal to that person.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting that just uh, made me think of kind of a comparison between the Death Eaters and the Order of the Phoenix and um, that the Death Eaters kind of just follow Voldemort. They don't actually offer anything to him, but more like just brute force and blind following. They, But, you know, no one's really scheming for him. Voldemort's kind of the mastermind. Whereas like the Order, you know, there's not even really much of a leader because everyone can kind of contribute their own skills, and everyone's pretty competent and smart. And that's kind of the same way it is for uh, Harry and the Trio. Harry's, while he may be the leader, you know, he certainly has to look towards Hermione for a lot, and Ron has his own things that he does. Um, it's not
3: just blind following and brute force. Crab and Goyle are kind of more bodyguards than anything else, I think.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because Malfoy's kind of scrawny. They act as the kind
1: of the
0: bouncers. <laughs> right.
3: And he clearly can't handle anything. He, they are there to make him look more imposing. Yeah. Right.
0: So the next comment comes from Snake Bites, and it says, the literary point of view of Crab and Goyle is to make a statement about Mo- Malfoy's character. Instead of choosing friends who may be his intellectual and social equals or superiors, such as Zabini or not, he chooses a pair of sidekicks who will leave his place at the center or of his personal clique unchallenged. He never has to worry about his friends outshining him in studies or sport, and thus his ego remains safe and secure. He never has to worry about them questioning his views or not laughing at his jokes, and always has two imposing figures to keep him safe from the retaliation of others he antagonizes.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's completely valid. Um, I I know Rowling. I don't know where it was written, maybe it was if it was on her website or Pottermore, um, all that where she had said she wrote that scene between Malfoy and not kind of just discussing life, and she had said that uh, Malfoy kind of sees himself as an on equal footing completely with not like not superior or inferior at all because they had just been raised in the same dynamic and not wasn't an idiot so yeah i think that's totally correct that malfoy just likes to surround himself with idiots so that he clearly remains the superior one
0: yep
3: do you think it's interesting that we've discussed them as two trios but they're actually two lots of six as well you've got um obviously the main Harry, Ron, Hermione, but also Ginny, Luna and Neville by the end of the books and with the Slytherins you've got Crabbe, Goyle, and Malfoy but also Zabini, Nott, um and Pansy Parkinson yeah.
0: that's really interesting I've never thought about that
3: <laughs> you've got six main characters on either side
0: obligatory genius moment, I'll say it for Kat
2: <laughs> 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 so Draco uh, I think really uh, has a bit of a problem with people uh, challenging him uh, because of these people he's hanging out with because every time it's either uh, he's got guys siding with him or when he's alone he's just saying well my father will hear us about this <laughs> so <laughs> that's the because he actually he cannot rely like on himself he, he needs to uh, I, I think it's toward Half-Blood Prince that he starts having his own uh, personality because of course his father is not uh, around to to back yeah. him in anything
3: at that point he needs to start proving himself
1: has it been like shown that draco is actually like intelligent we're kind of comparing him like saying like he's you know like the smarter more talented one compared to crab and coil that may be true but like has he ever actually demonstrated skill in anything besides
3: dark arts and even then not really i don't know i think he's 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 very cunning like with all of the schemes that we do see him run they are his own ideas i think um, and we never hear that he's doing badly in classes either. Um, so I would assume that he is more intelligent than Crabbe and Goyle, who I think Ron describes as a couple of trolls if he ever saw one. Right.
2: Yeah, because Draco actually made it to his uh, owl portion to, in his nude class in sixth year, and Crabbe and Goyle obviously are not there. So I think he's actually oh, yeah. good. Um uh, I think it would have been interesting to see him in uh, in Dumbledore's army to see what kind of charms and spells he can he can make. Hmm.
0: All right, so the next comment actually is from um, Piera. I didn't even realize that it was from her whenever I was putting it up. So we're going to let her read that one.
2: Yay! So, um, <laughs> another point is that Lucius Malfoy is a very powerful wizard in Britain, and one of the very few Death Eaters to be able to walk free after Voldemort's first defeat. Crabbingord fathers wouldn't want their sons to antagonize Draco, because they know uh, that Lucius can be dangerous. In return, it would strengthen the family name's reputation. The name's Crabbingord would be associated to Malfoy. The, cra- the crabs and guys would be feared and respected knowing that they're my four allies and people like the ministry would think twice before confronting them knowing my four would support uh, those two people those two families
1: and that's a really yeah. great point um just kind of on the politics of everything and yeah just associating yeah. yourself with different families it reminds me yeah of like game of thrones like
3: creating like alliances between families to become more intimidating but yeah even hanging out with friends of your father. Like, your fa- if your father is a powerful person and he is friends with powerful people and those powerful people have sons who are your age, you would hang out with those people because that's the group that you've kind of grown up with. Um, so he- I think even from, like... Imagine toddler crab and Goyle and Malfoy all hanging out in, like, a, a little Death Eater crash or something. <laughs> Crib. <laughs> but I think Malfoy being Lucius's son would always have had that kind of upper hand over the the more thuggish characters of mm-hmm. Crab and Coyle. Because the fathers are described very similarly.
0: Man, if MTV did a Wizarding World Cribs edition, I would totally <laughs> want the first episode to be for the Malfoy Manor.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, and I wrote this thinking about uh Cat comments in I think last uh, podcast she was talking about uh, the roots for the the word patronus and she came up with the uh, patronus client system from ancient Rome and I think this uh, type of concept can very very well be um, applied into the wizarding world because you have one yeah. powerful wizard and a bunch of other wizards who are less not lesser families but less influential and powerful families who rely to this uh, more powerful wizard to uh, gain influence and be actually protected against the ministry or other uh, wizard factions against them. So we have maybe like the Dumbledore Network, who has uh, people like the Weasleys, and uh, we have Voldemort who has his own Death Eaters, we have the Ministry, and so we have all those different kind of, also the Daily Prophet is actually uh, probably one of the stronghold of wizarding power in uh, Britain. But uh, I think it's very interesting to see it from that way, because we see some, uh, it shows how much the, the Wizarding World is actually corrupt, because we see people escaping justice, we see people getting no justice at all, like Sirius Black, he, he was like uh, sent to Azkaban without any trial or anything, but he didn't have any uh, powerful wizard network to back him up. That's maybe uh, why he was sent to Azkaban so quickly.
3: Yeah, and Malfoy is definitely a patron um, in in that sense of the word. We see him on the, the board of governors and things at the school. So he's definitely using his money in a very kind of a patron way um, to to buy power um, and also his family name. Yeah, he's definitely that kind of figure.
2: Yeah. And uh, in Chamber of Secrets, I think it's a beginning when uh, I think Archer Weasley gets a fine for his flying car. And actually, I think it's the the retaliation of Malfour, because uh, at the beginning of the book, we have uh, Malfour is going to um, the uh, not the uh, the shop in, uh, in Diagon Alley that sells dark stuff, uh, Borken and & Burke, and he's selling dark stuff, and he's saying, well, uh, the, the ministry is conducting raids, but who in the first place allowed these raids to take place? And later, I think we hear about Archie Weasley uh, speaking about this, and Molly actually warning him, that family's trouble and that to do this. And of course, something happens after that is that uh, Lucius or someone in the ministry managed to uh, find Archer with his flying car. So it's kind of a bit of a political warfare that Lucius is uh, is waging when people actually try to attack him.
3: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah.
0: All right, and our last comment comes actually from an email um, a fan sent in from Snowy 121 and it says, Crab and Goyle always seemed like tragic victims to me, characters who inhibited the same fatal flaw that Pettigrew had, the inability to have the courage to make the right choices and think for themselves. They have no independent thoughts throughout the series, constantly influenced by the more intimidating or powerful figures that surround them. The point of Crabbe and Goyle was for Joe and, in the end, the readers, to be able to compare more selfless and brave characters like Harry and his parents to these sorts of characters. In a sense, Crabbe and Goyle were the early versions or hints of Pettigrew. It is possible that they were inspiration for Pettigrew. I think Joe views cowardice as something worse than pure evil, or perhaps she views them as the same thing. After all, Voldemort was afraid of death and made of pure evil. She explicitly says that Malfoy isn't. It took bravery for him to stand up against Dumbledore in order to save his family.
1: Hmm. Wait, so Joe said that the Malfoys
3: aren't cowards? I think Lucius is definitely a coward,
0: right. but I don't yeah. think
3: Mal- that um,
0: Draco, Draco and especially. Oh, Draco, Narcissa. okay, I
3: thought I
1: was saying Lucius. I was like, Lucius is totally a coward. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think Narcissus is the
0: least cowardly of the oh, bunch. Yeah,
3: yeah Narcissus yeah. is so strong.
0: It's that blood of the Black family in her.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think Pettigrew would have been much better off if it had been sorting his Slytherin rather than Gryffindor. But I think he he went to Gryffindor because he really wanted to be James' friend, and maybe and actually Sirius stole this position for him probably right after the the welcoming phase in first year and uh Pettigrew just really ha- tried to hang up to this dream that maybe one day he's gonna be uh, james best friend but you always it always was serious who was uh, james best friend and Pettigrew really resenting him for that
0: yeah all right well i think that wraps up our comments from last week's episode thanks everyone for sending those in
3: so we better start our discussion for chapters 15 and 16 which is the quidditch final and professor Trelawney's prediction Look at him blubber. Chapter 15. Have you ever seen anything quite as pathetic? The Quidditch final.
0: (laughs) All right, well, here at the start of this chapter, we find out that Buckbeak is set to be executed. Um, All of a sudden, now, Harry and Ron decide they're going to help more um, Hermione... super emotional because she's been the one helping all this time and all of a sudden all is forgiven so everyone is back to being friends in the name of buck peak being executed how wonderful (laughs) sad that it took you know that much for them to decide they weren't going to be fighting anymore
3: they just can't deal with girls crying
0: yeah that's it (laughs) that's what makes ron buckle finally Um, and obviously Hagrid, um, Hagrid's depressed (laughs) at the news of Buckbeak being, um, being the order of being executed, um, when they go and see him. Um, then as the Harry, Ron, and Hermione leave Hagrid, they notice that Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle are laughing because they're obviously very high on the news that Buckbeak's going to be executed. And then we get this wonderful scene where Hermione will take no more of it and slaps the Snot out of Draco Malfoy, <laughs> and as great as great as it is that she slaps him, I just got to say the the punching in the movie is so much better. I wish I have
1: to. <laughs> I have to totally agree. I was actually disappointed because um, pr- of all the books I've reread, I've actually reread Prisoner the least, and um just because I didn't own it and. I because I've seen the movie so many times I forgot that like M- Hermione doesn't actually punch him in the face and it was a slap. So when I was rereading, I was like, wait a minute, like, she doesn't punch him. Like, it's so much better. But, but
0: still, that he gets it.
1: All right, oh, it's it's still badass and I still love it. Because <laughs> you have to remember, Hermione's thirteen here.
3: Yeah, but from a feminist point of view, like the the punch is more mm. empowering for a woman because the slap Agreed. is kind of yeah, the
1: slaps kind of is a just a bit like, too girly. Yeah. <laughs> More, yeah. it's, it's this slap's something I associate. Like, if you're like slapping like a like a crappy boyfriend or something like across the face, but like not if you're like this guy's such a jerk, like just punch him in the face and it's gonna be awesome.
0: <laughs> I'm sure she has enough rage and frustration between the case and Ron being annoying and classes being hard, though, that that slap had quite the kick. Right. Like, yeah. So it's
1: a lot of aggression being pent up in that. Yeah. Not to mention just the years of like the last three years now i guess of malfoy calling her mudblood and everything right
0: and in this scene she also pulls out her wand before draco and his cronies take off and i was kind of wondering here what do you think she was thinking of doing to him
1: (laughs) it's kind of like gonna i would imagine like a mad eye moment of like not turning
3: him into a ferret specifically but something along those lines (laughs) yeah we know that Ginny is an expert in the bat hex so maybe something along that line
2: right
0: yeah that's what i'm thinking (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, that was a great moment for Hermione because, of course, no teacher actually heard about this because Draco wouldn't dare telling Snape, oh, Hermione, hit me. like, And he would have, uh, I don't think it would have been to his advantage to tell that he had been slapped in the face by a girl, especially Hermione. Yeah. And I don't <laughs> think Lucius would have appreciated to her about that mudblood hit me on the face. Uh, I don't think it's a uh, Draco. Actually, uh, it was a great strategic moment for Hermione because no teacher was around to see this. Yeah, it would have been an em- embarrassment to admit to it. Yeah.
0: Okay, so after this, um, they go back to their their lessons, and um, Hermione, Mrs. Charms, um, this is just one more way that, like, i'm just like harry and ron how are you still so dumb that like clearly something is up and it's not just hermione being all over the place and missing because like hermione's excuse of forgetting a lesson like no like we, we there's no way you would buy that it's hermione
1: yeah, they just never. I, yeah, I was gonna bring this up in the next chapter. They just never challenge anything. Like when they, they're, they're smart enough to realize something's up, and they're saying like, "Wait a minute! Like, how can you be taking like those two exams at once?" And she's just like, "Of course, I'm not taking the exams at once." And they just are like, "Okay, <laughs> like, Hermione says so."
0: Yeah, they refuse to acknowledge the clues that something is clearly up.
3: But at the same time, it's very nice that they trust her so much just to believe her at face value.
0: <laughs> yeah, a little bit naive, though.
3: Yeah. They just so <laughs> don't care. They're like, whatever. Yeah. You
1: you be crazy, Hermione, with all your classes. You just don't <laughs> even care about it.
0: Yeah.
2: Maybe they just
1: don't even want to hear about it.
2: They were just lazy about it. Like, okay, it doesn't threaten anyone's life or their own Quidditch practice. So, yeah, Emran can do whatever she likes. I think... Someone like Elmion skipping a lesson would be actually dangerous for her because she's got such a good marks and like teachers seems to like her a lot. So mm-hmm.
1: her absence would go noticed.
0: Alright, and after charms they head up to divination class and um, they are talking about crystal ball gazing. Um, and I just love Rod's um reading whenever it gets to him to look into the crystal <laughs> ball. In which he says, it's obvious what this means. There's going to be loads of fog tonight. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not too clever, but I'm just imagining the moment. And then this sets off where um, after Harry and Ron or excuse me, Harry and Hermione laugh quite loudly over the the joke sets off this argument between Hermione and Trelawney and then Hermione takes off out of class. Um, which is, you know, the first time you go through this is pretty, I mean, obviously she has some problems with divination, but it's still a big deal for Hermione to just walk out of a class. I mean,
2: She's on that adrenaline. She's having a day. Yeah. Yeah, she, she could have just like flipped the table and then, I don't care about this class.
0: <laughs> I wish she would have flipped the table. <laughs> that would have been wonderful. I think it's
2: completely
3: believable, though, for anyone who's ever been that kind of, that much of an overachiever to want something so badly and to be so stressed out about it that just the tiniest thing will set you off.
2: Right definitely believable for her for hermione at this moment yeah yeah and divination is very a frustrating subject to Hermione because she really thinks she's wasting her time in yeah. this class but while she could be doing something much more important and much more uh rigorous in time of magic like transfiguration or charms and she's stuck there to having to endure the trelawney and whatever she sees she's saying crazy about what who's going to die this year Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I also, I think this chapter um, in these two moments between the slap and the storming out uh, is good on Joe's part of kind of just setting up some development with Hermione because at this point, um, you know, we've only really seen from her in the first two books her being, you know, very strong-willed, very good student, very good friend, uh, but still always kind of that just annoyance of never breaking the rules and always being like that so kind of setting up for future books especially like order of the phoenix with everything with the da uh you know it, it kind of sets up that she's breaking out of that character a little bit and i think becoming more likable to people that maybe that might not have liked her at the time mm-hmm. even though I've i was gonna say also that the, the
3: the 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 circle theory and the parallel theory between this book and order of the phoenix is so interesting when it comes to divination because obviously so much mm-hmm. of that later book is all about the prophecies. And yet in this book, which is its parallel, we are kind of taught to see that divination is this kind of loose subject that doesn't really work, um, only really works on one or two occasions. Um, mm-hmm. And that even Hermione, who we trust above all others, on kind of less lessons and what we should know, doesn't consider it an important subject. It's
2: really cleverly done. Hermione really started probably to consider uh, Divination as being really stupid after McGonagall said that she thought it was actually a really stupid subject. I think Hermione is in the first place, really thought Divination was uh, not really important. But when she heard McGonagall say herself that she didn't like it, she actually really picked up on it and really like, at least someone's on my side on this. And it's McGonagall, yeah. so it's really worth something. Yeah.
0: I also got to thinking because... I mean, obviously, we know we know Trelawney is for the most part not a seer, um, at least not as you know successful as people, the uh, Cassandra from her family. Um, but there are a couple of instances um, where you know she's actually making good predictions, aside from those demented moments where you know she, as we'll see in the next chapter. But I mean, she does see the Grim very frequently in Harry, and she sees it here again. And you know, while it it's not necessarily an omen of death. Like seeing the grim, the dog is, is correct. I um, mean, she also, as I can't remember now if it's provide or, or, lavender that points it out, but
3: it's lavender's rabbit, I think it is. Well, no,
1: the no, pre- the, pre- the pre- that pre-
0: Hermione. Hermione, um, that Trelawney correctly predicted that someone would be leaving their midst. Oh,
1: okay.
0: Um, and that obviously happened right now. So but I
1: think Joe's kind of commented on that once. I think it, I feel like it might have even been in like the, in Emerson and Melissa's interview Mm. of saying that you can kind of construct with the exception of obviously the times where she takes on that voice. uh, Like we're going to see in the next chapter of, you know, being a true seer. I think like the whole thing with predicting Hermione's leaving, it's almost like constructing things after the predictions are made. Like I think Joe uh, compared it to like Nostradamus and being like, well, you know, he said that and then that happened. Uh, And kind of just like searching, like self-fulfilling the prophecy and like searching for an answer that would have, doesn't necessarily have to do with it. So like, Uh all right, she said someone was going to be leaving us. like, all right, let's think about it. Okay, well, Hermione technically like left us, but
3: yeah. Yeah, because at the time she meant someone would die. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that makes sense.
3: I really think she's only a seer
1: when she takes on that, like has those fits I think the grim is
3: just her being That's like- an important social commentary in that as well. I mean, so many of what she says does actually come true. Mm-hmm. But that's because what she says is so vague and is so much of just cold reading and what a lot Self-fulfilling, of... Self-fulfilling, you know, yeah. Yeah, what a lot of um, so-called seers and things in our world pretend to do. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's the same idea and it's kind of a warning that... Um, magical seeing is very rare and should not be believed based on the kind of clues that we are given.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think Hermione would have dropped divination, even though Trelawney wouldn't have made that so-called prediction herself. So it didn't matter. Just Hermione just left the class whether or not, uh, depending, uh, Trelawney is making that, that so-called uh, prediction. But I think the only way to have a real prediction from Trelawney is that she doesn't actually know that she's making it. She has no uh, memory mm-hmm. of it. So when she said, oh, Professor, you said that someone will leave us forever. Yes, I did say that. Well, it wasn't a real prediction because she actually remembers it. Because when she makes a real prediction, she has, well, no memory of it. But that's for next chapter.
1: Yeah, no, I that makes me wonder if, um, like, if Trelawney's honestly believes that she has this sight power or if she's aware that like and like frustrated knowing that she's kind of making it up and oh i think she's totally aware and especially if she doesn't remember the fact that she's making the real predictions if she doesn't isn't aware that she has that ability occasionally um if she's just kind of like tortured like knowing that she can't actually do it or if she's delusional and thinks that she can
3: I really don't think that she believes that she can do it. I think that is one of the saddest things, is that she actually can, um, but she doesn't know. And she's kind of constantly trying to live up to her grandmother's legacy because mm-hmm. she's got nothing else to do.
2: She's a really sad character.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's why yeah, she tur- turns to the whiskey. Yep.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she's actually putting on a good show, a bit like know Roy Lockhart, but Lockhart knew that. Yeah. What he has done was completely false. At least, Trelawney may be not completely aware that she's not really a true seer. And when she actually... And she's
1: trying really hard. Yeah,
2: when she's really actually a true seer, she doesn't even remember. So that's a bit sad on that way because she doesn't know that she has this power and, and she's not aware of it. But everybody actually knows if they hang out with her for a long time to make a real prediction. But maybe people would just believe that when she makes actually a real prediction, there's just another piece of, uh, raving that she's saying. So they just won't believe it.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, shortly after this, the Easter holidays begin, and sad for the kids. They've got a lot of homework, which what a sucky holiday, but they're mm-hmm. also prepping for the Quidditch final, which is coming up. And, um, they mentioned that there's a mentioning of Charlie Weasley uh, being a great seeker. It made me wonder, where does all of this Weasley greatness in Quidditch come from? Because, I mean, pretty much the whole family play. I mean, we don't know about Bill, I guess. But Charlie does. Friend George do. Um, Ron does. Jenny does. So it's pretty good.
1: Percy's the star of the show.
0: Ugh, Bill. <laughs> Just Phil. Anyway, um. (laughs) I
1: think it's because they have I mean, we see I don't remember in what book they kind of like play outside because they have they're so because they are living on this farm and it's not like they're totally separated from other people that they kind of have the freedom to be playing outside in the fields. And they also maybe don't have anything else to do coming from, you know, not great means of entertainment. Like, I don't know what Malfoy does for entertainment, but he can the Weasleys, you know, they if they have their broom 60, they can go fly, and that's how they entertain themselves and get good at it.
0: Yeah. I also just kind of wondered if maybe Molly's brothers were good at Quidditch, Gideon and Fabian. Because mm-hmm. they're twins, right?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be like a parallel to Fred and right. But,
0: yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, Harry wakes up, and um, he, he notices out the window. This is in the middle of the night. He wakes up, and um he spots crookshanks with a dog on the lawn so this is really interesting i'm trying to remember back like what i thought about this scene the first time i read it like what is crookshanks up to because this may be like one of the first times we get a hint that crookshanks like might be up to something instead of just being a normal cat
1: yeah i mean we, we like all these exotic um Mystical animals are around Hogwarts, and then in addition to that, the cats, rats, toads, owls. But you know, when no, no one has a puppy, so the fact mm-hmm. that I'd see a dog roaming the, the grounds to begin with would set off an alarm,
0: yeah,
3: it would because of all of the grim stuff. The dog I'd is much the rather grim. have a puppy than a cat at Hogwarts,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: hmm. um, <clears throat> so. The Raven, as they go into the Great Hall the next morning, the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuffs are really supportive of Gryffindor. They're all decked out in Gryff attire. And this made me wonder, would this be swapped if it was Gryffindor? Because we know that Slytherin has like won the Quidditch Cup for a long time, many years running. But would it be swapped if it was Gryffindor that had been the winners for so many years? Would they be out there supporting Slytherin?
1: I kind of always, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I kind of always saw more of an alliance in support between Gryffindor and Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw and Slytherin that I think if... Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think if, if Gryffindor had been winning, I still think Hufflepuff would still be pulling for Gryffindor just because I can't see Hufflepuff's ever rooting for Slytherins because their personalities just don't go together. But I can see Ravenclaw uh, rooting for Slytherin.
0: Hmm, Yeah.
1: In the same way Gryffindor, I don't think, would ever... Like, let's say Ravenclaw was the one that had kept winning. I don't think in any world would Gryffindor ever root for Slytherin. No. In any case, and I think Hufflepuff is the same way.
0: Yep. Pierre, you're a Ravenclaw, so what would you, what would you say?
2: Uh, I think if Slytherin had been winning for, like, seven years, uh, I think I'd be really uh, actually pissed off about it. Like, I want any other house to win so we can change... Because Slytherin winning for so long, such a long time is actually really annoying. And right. so if it would have been Gryffindor winning all the time, maybe people would have been more uh, split up between Gryffindor and Slytherins. But I think uh, I would be just as glad as if uh, Gryffindor would lose for with, at this point because they would be winning too often.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: But... I just want to say something about uh, when you, sa- you talk about Harry's waking up, uh, about Harry's dream, because is mm, yeah. dreaming that he's playing Quidditch and Slytherin teams are actually riding dragons. Yeah. And yeah. that was really funny because they, 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 Harry is actually uh, having maybe a fore, foreshadowing of the first task of Goblet of Fire mm. at this point, because sure, where definitely. the first task is, uh, is with dragons. So Draco actually is a Targaryen in that Harry's
0: mind <laughs> <was really> Yes. <laughs> love the Game of Thrones reference.
2: I would love to play Quidditch on dragons. Ugh. I think it would be brilliant.
0: <laughs> just dragons any day.
2: Yeah, maybe they, they kind of upgrade Quidditch like in 100 years, they're going to play <laughs> on dragons.
0: Now I just like have this image of Draco riding a dragon and screaming, I will take what is mine with fire and blood. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He's actually got blonde no, hair. Draco is free. <laughs> oh, that's
0: true um
2: do not compare draco, to draco and jeffrey got slapped on the face a lot in the show so
0: thank goodness there's <laughs> never enough of that but so i picked up on something when the match actually started we've talked about this this issue where Rowling has before said there's like a thousand students at hogwarts and the math doesn't quite add up from like what we know about at least you know based on what we know about gryffindor house and how many kids are in each house each year and it also mentions here in the match that there are 200 people there representing Slytherin. So this this 200 people in Slytherin also goes against the math that, like, we know about houses, but this 200 sort of supports that about 1,000 students.
2: Yeah, I think it's really crazy. I think Rowling really had a, a problem with numbers mm-hmm. because 1,000 student Hogwarts is just crazy. It's just too much. Right. Uh, I think to my own opinion, if I had to re- correct those numbers, probably I would say that there's about 200 students at Hogwarts mm-hmm. and maybe about 50 uh, students in each house. Right. So And have maybe 30, 40 new students every year. Maybe Harry's year was just a particularly like low yield
3: of kids. Maybe there were just a lot more kids in previous years. That that's, built up that's,
2: that I
0: think that's the only way that her numbers could <laughs> add up, right, is, is like you mentioned.
2: Yeah, or maybe Harry was having trouble, actually, what a thousand people out there look like. Maybe he saw so many people that he thought it was a thousand. (laughs) There's, like, about 3,000
1: kids right here. Like, that's how I do math. So, my lecture hall, like, there's apparently 300 kids in there. And if you asked me to guess, I would have been like, yeah, there's, like, 700 kids in here. I don't
3: know how (laughs) to do, like, a head count. (laughs) So, And to be fair, most of these kids, you know, have never gone to a muggle math class, so... They don't know how That's to count. That's
0: true. <laughs> What's a 5? <five? laughs> yep. So, I also find it very interesting that here we are, the chapter's the Quidditch final and the World Cup is going on down in Kissimmee, Florida. Um <laughs> where unfortunately not out. at. Brilliant timing. I really wish I was at. Um and I have to give a big shout out because right now it's the semifinals and my alma mater, um alma mater, why do I say, matter? I don't know. Alma mater, University of Texas is in the semifinals, so shout out to Texas. Horns. Yeah. Let's we go win Kat this thing.
1: We hope Cat are having a fun time in Florida.
0: Yeah. But what's most important is that Texas needs to win. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's there's a scene in, during the match, and obviously like as these movies go on, we get less and less of Quidditch, which is really unfortunate. But... Um, I would have given anything to see the scene where Fred smashes Flint's head with his bat in the movie. Maybe that's a little violent for me, but <laughs> I just still think it's anytime Flint gets what he deserves is excellent. Yeah. Um
1: And more Weasley twin scenes are always plus for me. <laughs>
0: right. Also, man, so lovely Jordan, and I love it because <clears throat> especially as a Gryffindor, his bias calling, but it gets a pretty out of hand in this match. And obviously, it's a very high-stakes, high-emotional match. But good grief, how how has he not been pulled yet? Obviously, McGonigal <laughs> is always shouting at him to, like, shake back. But surely someone else would have stepped in by now and been like, Nope, not anymore for you, bud. You're done.
1: Yeah, um, I think they should probably give someone that's totally
0: unbiased. to. But, yeah, but I mean, there's obviously not going to be anyone that's totally unbiased. But Jordan is, like, very vehement about his support for Gryffindor. (laughs) Which I'm fine with, but...
2: I really cannot imagine Snape making the commentaries for Quidditch. Oh my god.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just almost, like, spit out my food. That is... I just... The thought of Snape doing Quidditch commentary...
2: Would be hilarious.
0: Judging everyone (laughs) constantly.
2: (laughs) Uh, Everybody would would be throwing in stuff from the... And saying, why do you... And having a, it's the same voice that Rickman has in the movies like mm-hmm. Flint's pass to <laughs> Malfoy, Malfoy. no, okay five points five points from, from Gryffindor, Gryffindor.
1: Yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, that would be great.
2: Set aside the the Quidditch a game, a lot of people are actually yelling in this book. I think it's the it's used maybe the what I call the Dementor weather, like the the presence of the Dementor actually uh increased like all uh, all the emotions that people have, especially the anger and mm. maybe the the sadness sometimes, because uh, people are crying and slapping each other and crying again and shouting and <laughs> actually just sort of. Uh, Everyone's just, i like <laughs> really on edge.
0: Everyone's suddenly 13. Including my homegirl, McGottigal, who like goes <laughs> after Malfoy, <laughs> shouting at him, waving her finger and not having any of it. I love it. <laughs>
1: Everyone just needs to like join hands, like a nice, like. Seance. Ugh, there's not time. Nobody got time for that. <laughs> Everyone, no. make some tea. It'll be
0: great. <laughs> Ew, this is Quidditch. No? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but at, at the end of the match, Harry Harry sees that Malfoy's going for the the Snitch, and he catches up with him and he grabs it. And this is one of my favorite moments of the book. It just the the way Rowling closes this chapter is like so emotionally powerful. All of the feels are happening because. I was so like,
1: happy when I first read this.
0: You get so emotional for Wood because, like, it's his last chance to win the cup and he gets it. Yeah. And the crowd is going wild. And then that, like, McGonagall is crying and, like, that makes me <laughs> want to cry. And then, <laughs> and then that moment when Harry sees Ron and Hermione, it's, like, this very, like, simple, like, moment where he just sees them and there's this smile. And it's just, like, it's, like, this is why you love these characters. It's
1: one of the only moments for Harry that's just, like, pure happiness. Yeah. It's, yeah.
0: yeah, it's it's incredibly. Great.
3: I might have cried when I first read this.
0: I was I nine. Mean, <laughs> it's a possibility. I might have cried yesterday. So,
3: okay. <laughs> it's an equivalent moment to the the Quidditch Cup when he wins and then um, gets together with Ginny for the first time. Yes. It's the, the same level of emotion. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, no. Uh, wonderful.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that uh, that good. Those good feelings all around continue into the next chapter, which is...
3: Chapter 16. (laughs) Professor Trelawney's Prediction.
1: So everyone is enjoying the nice weather, and... They just want to be, she says, sipping pumpkin juice, playing gobstones by the lake, just like chilling in the sun. And that's totally the way it gets in springtime, like, spring like I'm on a college campus and there's people playing frisbee outside, not going, my classes yeah. that are supposed to have like 50 people and then have three. So <laughs> um, it's kind of made this, even though they can't do that because they have to be studying for their exams, it's just what they want. Uh, it makes you think how nice and fun it would be to just be going to Hogwarts in a normal year when, like, evil isn't taking over the world and you're not Harry Potter. Because it's just like, oh, (laughs) they're playing gobstones, they're by the lake, they're sipping ice pumpkin juice, which sounds delicious. If you've ever had this stuff at the Wizarding World um, theme park, I want that now. Um, But, yeah. So it's a shame that they can't just enjoy Hogwarts. But everyone's studying for their exams. I love how they say that even Fred and George were working (laughs) as kind of a way of saying, like... No, like everyone's working and this still (laughs) strikes me as not being possible we know that they do badly on their owls yeah percy's taking his newts uh everyone's on edge um so ron and harry we talked about this still being stupid over the fact that hermione is clearly taking double classes never challenge her but the the beginning of this chapter kind of gives us a real scope of all their schoolwork i find it as a reader sometimes you forget that they they like go to class and school is a thing because there's just so much else going on, especially as you move through the like next books of all the other stuff that goes on. That this chapter, they really talk about, I think, every single one of their classes and the classes Hermione takes also because they're talking about their exams and it they have a lot on their plate. But what mm-hmm. I love is the Defense Against the Dark Arts final is an obstacle course which is the most fun way to take an exam ever (laughs) rather than just sitting there and i'm starting the official campaign that now every single exam should be a practical obstacle course (laughs) because that's way more fun but so they have to fight all of these creatures and what i find particularly frightening is you know they have to face a boggart again but when they faced a bogart the first time, you know, they were standing outside all around these people and the boggart would come out. Now they have to climb into the trunk. Yeah. And that's like, scary. it sounds like they're being like locked in it because,
0: <laughs> yeah. like, they
1: mentioned like Hermione like emerges from it and is like banging or something. So that's scary enough to begin with. Like, what if your fear was claustrophobia or something? Now it's like double fear because you got the boggart and you're locked in a, <laughs> in know, well. How would
3: a bogart show claustrophobia? That's a really interesting idea. Maybe just like
1: enclosing you in like
3: yeah turn into smoke or darkness or something you. yeah
1: creepy but yeah if you you could just the Bogart could just chill there take a nap during the claustrophobic <laughs> kid and just be like <laughs> I'm Jump's gonna done. let I'm gonna let this box handle it <laughs> but, um, yeah so it kind of just casually says you know like Harry fight fought the Bogart but I was thinking like if he's in this trunk and his Bogart we know is a Dementor like he just you know casually just fought off a Dementor. Um, in yeah, isn't in a proximity trunk thing? normally a
3: problem as well?
1: Right. With the yeah. Branches?
3: How big um, is this trunk?
1: Yeah, I also think you know a lot of the people in the class. I feel like have an upper hand because they've battled the Boggart once before and they've kind of seen their biggest fears and figured out how to make it not scary. Whereas, like you know, we see Hermione. This is the first time she's facing her Boggart and she has a meltdown. Yeah. Um. Because this is like her first time that she's dealing with it rather than the other people that are like, oh, this Dean with his hand again, just being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, Hermione, we get to see what her bogart is. It's McGonagall telling her that she failed everything. Um, and she starts like screaming hysterically. And, you know, it's a reasonable feel for Hermione that like, you know that McGonagall would be telling her that she failed everything I think it's an unreasonable response that you'd be like screaming at the top of your lungs and then like sobbing and being needing to be like calmed down
3: but consider how hard she's worked this year to know that everything's been for nothing it would be horrible
1: but like Hermione has to know, like it's a bogger, like it's not real. I don't know. Hermione strikes me as someone that's so reasonable
3: and like logical.
0: Yeah, but you got to think she's like probably like sleep deprived right now. That's true. She's like yeah, mm-hmm. that's not right. on her A game. By,
3: by this stage, her emotional state is at the point that it's overriding the logic. Yeah, that's true. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, she she's got a lot of pressure of going to all these classes at the same time and using a time turner properly. So. Maybe she just broke down under pressure, like when she heard McGonagall uh, telling that she would fail everything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And not to mention, she's also in like the course of twenty, like the week of also you know beat up Malfoy and like ran out of a classroom. <laughs> like she's having a week. Girl needs a break. This could
3: have been like the sixth exam she's taken that day as well. Right. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> um. But, so
1: so now everyone's they're all done with the exams i like ron feels inclined to make fun of hermione about her boggart i'm glad he doesn't because <laughs> hermione could have very well slapped him in the face too she was feeling it probably <laughs> but um uh, the trio sees fudge at the top of the stairs and he says that he's here to execute hippogriff, the hippogriff without even say like the appeal is supposed to happen he's just saying like yeah like i'm here to execute buckbeak and they're asking, like, oh, my God, like, is, did he lose the appeal? And he's like, well, no, but... So, Buckbeek's already lost before this has begun. The, we know that now the appeal doesn't have a chance. This is hopeless.
0: No justice. None. Which Zero. Is, it's
1: really sad. And that no justice is really starting to hit um, Harry and Ron. I think Hermione's always, since the beginning, you know, seen that there's no justice in it. And Harry mm-hmm. and Ron have, too, but, like, haven't really cared. But now it's really hitting them. Like, oh, my God,
3: like they're totally just killing this thing right now and it's so not fair I think it's a brilliant start to undermining Fudge as well because before now we've seen him as a very protective character like at the beginning of this book he was there to really help Harry but at this moment he's turning executioner instead
2: yeah that's really like Lucio Smile is working here because I think uh Malfoy was actually kicked out of the Governor's Board at the end of Chamber of Secrets and I think ever since then he's tried to regain uh, some of his influence but rather going Mm -hmm. to the Ministry and starting influencing Fudge and perhaps uh, he actually met Umbridge on his way uh, on his way there and they agreed like a kind of secret alliance to start influencing Fudge to distance him (laughs) from uh, Dumbledore because Fudge was actually really uh, needy on doberdor doing pres- uh, philosophy stone he was uh, always like sending him owls and stuff like that but right now he's actually uh, mm, taking his advice uh, from lucius and probably umbridge behind the scenes right now
1: yeah. that is very true uh, so next is the divination exam and they're walking into it like well, this is hopeless. So this is how I walk into math exams, just being like, "Well, I'm <laughs> not. Let's just just pretend to see if something comes to me." Neville asks, "Has them? Has either of them ever seen anything in the crystal ball?" And they're like, "Nope, not a chance." But the girls are like, girls like Pavardi uh, and everyone. They're doing wonderful. So Harry goes into his, his exam, and it's like a one-on-one exam with um, with Trelawney, which is kind of more intimidating when you're put put in put on the spot like that and yeah charolani asks what he sees and the first thing that comes to mind is the hippogriff and uh charolani asks like oh are you seeing like a bloody hippogriff that's like seizing on the ground (laughs) and uh harry probably could have easily passed his exam by being like yeah like that hippogriff's real dead but He's almost taking like you know, like the book like the secret like approach to it by being like, No, like Buckbeak's flying away Like he's like willfully like you know, making those like making it happen by saying like, Yeah, yeah. no, like Buckbeak's flying away and it's freedom and it's great, even though he's not seeing
3: anything. He's choosing Which not But to... ultimately Yeah, that's true. Ultimately It ultimately does happen. So like mm. Trelawney should, you know, pass his exam because it <gasps> it does happen. It's Pretty yeah,
2: good. retroactively <laughs> past um, <the> exam. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exam. Well, that's actually a good occasion to, uh, to have the students make their imagination work because they have to invent anything and... They get a good mark for it. Like I think it's is it an order Phoenix that Harry and Ron are doing this stupid uh, dreams diary and they write anything in there. Yeah, that's really that's really funny. Yeah,
1: Harry could have easily passed his exam by being like, "Yep, the Buckbeak Buckbeak season on the ground," but he chose not to. He chose to <laughs> have good good vibes for no Buckbeak's gonna get off of it. But
2: or maybe turned it against Redon and he said, "Oh, actually, I see a teacher being sacked from the school, <laughs> a very incompetent teacher, and like maybe she, she's gonna give you a bad mark because." You you talked against her, but.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, now we have the prophecy, Professor Trelawney's prediction. Uh, So Trelawney starts seizing, which would have been terrifying enough, just like seeing, not knowing what to do, of seeing like your teacher. Her eyes are rolling back in her head, she's shaking. Uh, But never mind that. (laughs) She's also predicting that the servant will be rejoining the Dark Lord, which, of course,. super significance for Harry uh so I think it's slightly misleading in saying that like after having been chained up for 12 years um just as a wording choice because Pettigrew isn't necessarily chained up so I know you're supposed to I think go back and be like oh well she was talking about Pettigrew and not serious but a bit misleading but
0: yeah
1: you know So we get the prediction that the servant will be rejoining the Dark Lord once again. And now, would this prediction, did this prediction happen because Harry was like in the room and like was talking to Harry? Or could this have happened with like Neville's exam? Like just, you know, her just having it.
0: I think she had to be around Harry.
3: I think she also fell asleep didn't she like this is the end of a long day for her as well I think the she's always talking about like this ambience of her room
1: wasn't that
0: just her excuse though
3: no no, yeah no she didn't actually maybe but it was because she couldn't remember it and she was like oh I must have just dozed off I was just thinking that maybe if like um predictions need to happen when you do when you are more open to them but I guess that wouldn't really work for the original prophecy so never mind. (laughs) Yeah, well, I like that Harry calls Trelawney
1: out on her prediction. In the film, when, like, she she's like, oh, did I say something? Harry's like, no. Because like, he's just kind of freaked out by it. But he was like, wait a minute, like, you just said the Dark Lord's, like, coming back <laughs> and his servant and stuff, like, hold up. And But Trelawney's just like, no, that didn't, totally didn't happen. would be silly.
2: Yeah, she always thinks she's falling asleep after when she's making the, the prediction. But I think it's a very really random moment. I think she could have said that during Neville's exam or Ron's exam, uh, but when I'm looking at the prophecy, actually, I think she was... The prophecy is not is not about uh, Peter or Sirius, but about Bartikora Jr. Because we know at the beginning of Goblet of Fire that uh, he's actually been imprisoned by his own father uh, under the Imperius curse and actually managed to escape and rejoin uh, Voldemort. So I think those things actually happened at the same time. So Harry... Uh, interpret the prophecy as being related to Wormtail, but maybe rather more uh, Barty Crouch Jr., because he's really the, the faithful servant of Voldemort, compared to Vo- Wormtail, who's just serving Voldemort, because uh, he's kind of a... he thinks Voldemort is really a much powerful uh, wizard than him.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. That would make more, the, the chains thing yeah make more sense. How did Barty Crouch ex- escape
0: well, they well they switched play. He and oh, they
1: switched spots. Yeah, he and his
0: right. mom used Polyjuice Potion.
3: Right. Okay. Yeah, I forgot. He would have been out by now, though, surely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And he doesn't escape again until the beginning of Book Four. Yeah, that's so, definitely
1: an interesting possibility. Yeah, it could be. Uh, so Harry is running and he's going to tell Ron and Hermione like hold up like <laughs> trelawney just made this prediction about you know Sirius black and voldemort but he gets distracted because they just find out that buckbeak officially lost his appeal she already knew what happen. uh and it's really sad because hagrid's like they get it in a handwritten note from hagrid and it's really shaky and obviously hagrid's like super upset and you know it breaks my heart but they need to they want to go support Hagrid and they need to get there where they're not allowed to be there so they're trying to figure out how to get there and Rebel Hermione who's now all about the rule breaking is like oh well let's just get the invisibility cloak and sneak out and it'll be great. <laughs> and I feel like we need like an alter like create a name for Hermione like an alter ego of, like when she gets <laughs> in this like rebel mode like it's like badass Hermione but I don't know. I ne- I need an official name for that. But so they go to meet Hagrid before the deed is done, and yeah, it's just heartbreaking because there's nothing they can do, and they're really upset about it, like, well, maybe we can talk to this, and can't Dumbledore do something, but, you know, Malfoy's got his, you know, hands in it, and nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna help now, and, uh, but Scabbers is found, but it... And Ron's super happy about that. He's like, oh, my God, Scabbers is back, and there's no cats around to kill him. But Scabbers is scurrying around like crazy. And why is this necessary, necessarily, like, why is he going crazy like this? Like, does he know, like, Black is near and all the stuff that's going to happen is going to go down tonight? Because there's why would he know anything like that? And why would he be acting all weird? Why wouldn't he just be chilling like the rat that he's always been chilling,
3: like, to keep his, like, think cover low? I think he's he's freaked out because he's been found
0: yeah that's oh, the only exploit right. i thought about the same thing that's the only thing i can think of it's like he's had this hiding place whatever i mean <laughs> random though it may be he's gotten away from everyone but now he's been made
2: why would he have not left hogwarts he was hiding uh was hiding from the marauder's map because marauder's map doesn't cover hagrid's hut oh. so he didn't want to be yeah. discovered on the map so he just went to hide in Hagrid's cabin and he found a comfortable yeah. place there and stayed there. And actually, he's, he's really freaking out right now because the kids found him back. So they're going to bring him up on the map area, whoever has it. And that's
1: because, yeah, Pettigrew, obviously, he was part of the map's creation, which I always forget, uh, and probably saw Harry using it in the dorm or whatever. And yeah,
3: that's probably I'm not the sure reason. that Hagrid's hut isn't on the map. Um, it, it, I mean, it possibly isn't, but I don't think we've ever seen it c- denied or confirmed. I thought the the forest was on the map. Yeah, um, I think so. And and the hut would be between Hogwarts and the forest. Um, but I think he ran away as Scabbers because Crookshanks was after him and because Sirius had been in the dorm. Um, mm. and and knew, you know, he, Scabbers knew or Pettigrew knew that Sirius was closing in. So I think that's why he ran away. But I don't understand why he never left Hogwarts. As someone who knew all of the secret passageways and all of the different ways of getting out of the castle, I don't understand why he stuck around because he
2: was never going to return to Ron because, I mean, Crookshanks knew who he was. Maybe he was trying to actually hide in Hagrid's hut and maybe sneak back into Ron's luggage when you're going back to, to the Burrow at the end of the year and just be discovered in his luggage. Hey, look, Ron, you didn't have lost your rat. It was just in your luggage somewhere. Um, but at this point in the story, it's Remus who has the Marauders map, right? Yeah. He took it from uh, Harry. Yeah. So maybe... Harry went to the dormitory and told Ron about this and look it's, Remus, it's Professor Lupin who has the map now and Scabbers heard this and he said oh I have to, to go hide somewhere because Remus will know that I'm actually in the castle so he ran away with it because I mean Peter is supposed to be dead. Remus thought that uh, everybody thought mm-hmm. that he was dead so he if had to If it was to connected
3: disappear. to the map why wouldn't Scabbers slash Peter steal the map? He was living in the same dormitory as it for years he could have easily taken it well, not years, but a year. <laughs> if he knew that he would have been found through it, he could have
1: stolen it. Nice to mention he's also at the burrow in the meantime where the Weasley twins live. Yeah, they had it. Huh. I don't know if Scabbers was aware that the Weasley twins had it because Ron wasn't aware of it, so...
2: Because true. Um, Scabbers belonged to Percy before and I don't think the twins would have shared the knowledge of the Marauder's Map with That's Percy. True. So... Probably uh, Peter only heard about it too late about the map and it was too late for him to actually transform into the Dimitri while no one's there and take the map and keep it with him.
1: Okay, um, and the chapter wraps up on a very sad note. Buckbeak is killed, Hagrid... Makes Her- Harry, Heron, and Hermione leave so that they don't have to be around it, but they kind of hear that swift sound of the axe coming down, and it's just too much for them to handle. Hermione, in particular, is like shaking. They can't wrap around their heads that, like, the deed is done. There's no more things that words that can be said. Like, Buckbeak is dead. Ugh, and it's very I was unfair.
0: devastated. Yeah. The first time I read it's, this,
1: it's really upsetting because it's just really, it's such. I think I, I could be wrong, but up until now, justice has kind of always prevailed. We see, like, Hagrid get put into Azkaban, but then he comes back, you know, Dumbledore gets thrown away from the school, then he comes back, you know. Yeah,
3: and this one is very final.
1: All, everything that's bad that has happened has kind of been, you know, fixed. This is like the first yeah. thing was like, all
3: right, this is an injustice, we've just murdered someone and, you know. It's interesting that that's at the hand of Malfoy. Yeah, as in Draco, not just Lucius. Right. So first injustice, really. Hmm. That's
0: it. Sad. Very
3: sad. So we'll find out what happened to Buckbeak later on, hopefully, because.
0: <laughs> What's gonna happen? Ah. Oh.
3: Who knows? Oh. Never read these books before. That uh. <laughs> is now time for our special feature. Pottermore in depth. <laughs> Well, Harry, the Daily Prophet readers want to hear the in-depth scoop on you. Um, well, I... Uh, Absolutely brilliant. Ignore the quill. Tell me more, Mr Potter. Um, we've had a, a wealth of new information given to us over this last week, but we're only going to do two little sections of it at the moment. Um. So we're going to look at the Hogwarts portraits, because we've discussed them a lot and we've finally got some answers. Um. And we're also going to look at gobstones. And we'll do the Marauder's Map and the Firebolt in the next episode. Sweet. So we've obviously discussed the portraits so much about, um, you know, whether they are actually people, whether they are just kind of 2D representations, whether they have their own intelligence. And, you know, guess what? JK Rowling listens to our podcast and she has answered pretty much all of our questions um, I'm not going to read the whole thing out because there's an, a, a decent-sized chunk that you guys should all go on to bottom or to read. Um, but I am going to k- pick out some key points um, that we can discuss. So, there is a point that says, They behave like their subjects, however the degree to which they can interact with the people looking at them depends not on the skill of the painter, but on the power of the witch or wizard painted which I found incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. We've never really discussed that concept before. Right. What do you guys think of that?
0: That's that's so interesting and I can't believe we hadn't really thought about that.
3: Yeah. I guess we've only really seen the intelligent portraits as, you know, the um the headmasters that we haven't really considered the intelligence or power of other portraits that we've like seen. Like the fat lady and
1: you know, I kind of see Sir uh, Cadogan as someone that's pretty silly and doesn't necessarily have the abilities that he thinks he does. So he, obviously, he's running through all the different portraits and communicating with everyone. Um, I didn't necessarily see him as a super powerful
3: wizard. No, me neither.
0: Hmm.
3: Okay, so another point was that the portrait will be able to use some of the subject's favorite phrases and imitate their general demeanor. Which, if you think about a painting that we see outside of Hogwarts with Mrs. Black, is just horrific if you think about Sirius growing up in that house.
0: Mm. yeah, mm. If that's uh.
3: her general demeanor. But then in the Deathly Hallows, Phineas, I can never pronounce
1: his name, I won't attempt to. Um, <laughs> you know, he seems to be pretty, like, communicating with them like, on a much like deeper level
3: then Well just... he was a headmaster. Um oh, okay. and maybe he was a a great wizard. We don't really right. know much about him. Right, okay. Okay, but uh leading on from that we've got another point which says neither of these portraits would be able to comp- uh, these portraits meaning the Fat Lady and Sir Cadigan. Um would be able t- would be capable of having a particularly in depth discussion about more complex aspects of their lives. They are literally and metaphorically two-dimensional. Um, so in the in terms of Sir Cadogan and the Fat Lady, they are literally just the picture that is painted in the portrait. Mm. Um, they have no other kind of intelligence than what was given to them at the time of the painting. However, traditionally, a headmaster or a mistress is painted before their death, and once the portrait is completed, the headmaster or headmistress in question keeps it under lock and key, regularly visiting it in its cupboard, if so desired, to teach it to act and behave exactly like themselves, and imparting all kinds of useful memories and pieces of knowledge (laughs) that may then be shared through the centuries with their successors in office. That is just fascinating.
0: Yeah.
3: So do you think, in terms of the headmasters that we're aware of, do you think that Dumbledore would have spent vast amounts of time talking to his own portrait or do absolutely you think he would have not. let himself die
0: oh i disagree no, I, th- I think he absolutely would have
3: i i don't
1: i think that um you know i guess the only time we see Dumbledore it's dumbledore's portrait interact was right at the end of deadly hallows but it's still even that it's a brief conversation but i see someone as dumbledore Dumbledore is someone who did, doesn't care so much about having his legacy live on and being, like, this all-important thing that always has to be wise forever. I see him as someone that was way more busy with more important things, like finding the horcruxes and stuff. He wouldn't care to be, like, go teaching a portrait, his own memories, just for the purpose of, like, other people to being able, like, for him to live on.
0: I don't know. I think he's he's so focused on like keeping track of things. Like we see this in the pensive, and I just think this is like a very similar situation to that. I see him spending a lot of time with it.
2: Since um, Dumbledore knew he was dying, actually, a year before he actually died, that gave him mm-hmm. plenty of time to actually speak That's to true. his portrait and prepare everything in advance. It's not like a student. It's not like a Hagrid would have. Storm into his office and killed him like on the spot, like he knew it, what was coming.
3: <laughs> yeah, I see this more as a mirror of said than as a pensive situation. So he would have been wary mm. about replicating himself um, after death and kind of giving false hope of more information. But I also agree that he knew that he was going to be dying for a year before he actually did. So he would have imparted as much knowledge into that portrait as he thought would have been useful um, in the, the coming battle. Um, which is why we see it talking to Snape um, because I think he planned that Snape would become the next headmaster um, and he wanted to to be able to still talk to him um, to convince him to still kind of go ahead with the plan because everything could have fallen apart after Dumbledore died um, but I think his portrait kept Snape in line and kept kept everything going in the right direction. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
3: but thank you so much to joe for giving us all that information because it's just amazing yeah. really try and check it out go and read it because there is so much more on there that really just answers pretty much every single question we've ever asked about portraits
0: this is just like goes to show i swear she's listening to the show because we have been talking <laughs> about portraits for so long and like mm. boom all of a sudden the next big reveal is portraits <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, and actually, it, it it gives more explanation on to why, like, for example, uh, Sirius Blackmother's portrait is so different from the Headmaster's portrait, like yeah. because yeah. Uh, Sirius Blackmother just keeps screaming at people instead of just well, my days, you wouldn't have this kind of people in my house," and she, <laughs> she doesn't start talking about the old times when she was there compared to uh, the Headmaster's portrait in in office. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm
3: okay so i have a question for you guys have you actually got up to the to the latest point on
1: i can't beat the spell part of chamber of secrets i'm stuck
3: (laughs) i don't understand
1: it i've watched like 50 youtube tutorials of like (laughs) trying to figure out how to do the stupid spells i can't get past it so i got frustrated and it was like this site could be used by seven year olds what's wrong with
3: me and i gave up (laughs) i got stuck on the the gnome (laughs) flinging for so long yeah no Um, that was another thing yeah (laughs) But one of the amazing things that they have now added to Pottermore are clips from the Stephen Fry audiobooks. Yes. And I was just wondering if it was still the Stephen Fry ones elsewhere, if that's just uh, a UK thing. Because if you guys have only oh. heard... Is it Jim Dale that reads this? Jim he? Dale, yeah. 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 If you guys have only heard him, then you guys should check out Stephen Fry as well, because he is the voice of Potter to me. It's just he's got the perfect tone and everything. I was um, never an audiobook same. person... So the only audiobook I read was
1: Goblet of Fire because I had rented it from my library when I was like 10. And sure. I'm pretty sure it was Jim Dale. Um, okay. And I remember just being frustrated because I was young and that was the only time that I had... I didn't know what the concept of an audiobook was. And I was under the <laughs> impression... Oh my God, it's so stupid to think back now. That everyone... That there'd be like different voices for everyone. Like it was like a whole cast of characters some and audio bits are but i remember distinctly thinking i was oh it must have been like 9 or 10 thinking that like i'd be able to hear like almost like the actors from the movies being like <laughs> since that movie hadn't come out yet being like oh like i'm going to be able to hear what like crumb sounds like and stuff Aww. thinking like the actors <laughs> i don't know i am just i'm remembering this now it's but yeah no that was that was the only time and i don't think i read the whole book i'm pretty sure even just listened to the riddle house i'm like banned at my public library because i don't return things (laughs) so god knows that's
3: still in my house (laughs) okay (laughs) well do try and get to the appropriate point on pottermore and listen to the clip of stephen fry if you're able to because it will just prove to you that you know potter can be listened to as well as read and as well as seen um, but more on the topic that Stephen talks about in the next episode, because he talks about the firebolt. But the, uh, we are now going to go on to the gobstones information, which seemed a little obscure, considering when has gobstones been there? a pu- big part of Potter? <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, especially in terms of talking about Quidditch today. Um, here is another magical sport or game um, that we don't really know much about. Um, and I'm only going to give I'm only going to read a couple of snippets from this but professional gobstone players compete in national leagues and international tournaments but it remains a minority sport within the wizarding world and does not enjoy a very cool reputation something its devotees tend to resent (laughs) and I can just see this being a perfect game for Noah Yep. (laughs) it's just exactly the kind of thing that he would love and want to change the reputation for So the the National Gobstone Association has attempted recruitment campaigns such as Give Gobstones a Second Glance, (laughs) which I can see Noah starting a Twitter campaign for. Um, Don't don't encourage him. (laughs) But Gobstones enjoys a limited popularity at Hogwarts, ranking low among recreational activities, way behind Quidditch and even behind Wizarding Chess. And... Uh, on a side note and there is a small spoiler warning that comes with this on Pottermore in case this is your first read (laughs) you may want to skip over this next sentence but um, the mother of Professor Severus Snape who is called Eileen Prince was president of the Hogwarts Gobstone Club in her time at school which we find out in later books so that's not really even new information Um, but it's interesting to know that there are other sports out there than just Quidditch and Wizarding Chess Yeah. so you know give Gobstones a second glance
0: give it to them let will make it a little. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see. I'm so glad we finally are getting more Pottermore. It seems like this has been one of the longest waits. Ugh. But we're finally getting more. Looking forward to seeing the other. Talking about the other stuff
3: if it's all going to be as good as this batch has been, then we can, we can afford the wait. Because be very right. I've True. been just patiently waiting for
1: like the past 10 years of my life for this background information on gobstones. gobstones. So <laughs> thank God the day has come.
0: Yeah. All right. So it is time for this episode's question of the week, which I will take over this time. So we talked quite a bit about justice in this episode and it is a running theme in this book. Um, and what I think we really want to ask you guys and see what you think is, how does the, the acquisition or gaining of justice between Buckbeak and Sirius compare with one another? Um, because both are wrongly convicted and um, go through punishment for that. Or well, I guess Buckbeak, in a way, has his own punishment. Being locked, tied up is pretty much punishment. Um, but how are, how are those two similar and how are they different? And what is the point of setting those justice themes, juxtaposing them together? And also this idea of what is Rowling trying to accomplish as a writer for her readers with articulating that the government is unable to correctly bring justice for these two parties that are definitely innocent. And it's not the government that's able to bring them justice, but rather these people who are really acting as vigilantes. Because when you think about it, That's what Harry and Hermione are doing when they're trying to get um, Buckbeak and Sirius away. Obviously, they have personal investment, but they're vigilantes trying to get the people who are innocent, not just people, but the creatures who are innocent, away from from harm. So basically what we're, we're wanting to ask you guys and get an answer is, how would you compare the justice elements between Buckbeak and Sirius, and what is Rowling trying to accomplish by juxtaposing the government, Failure and the vigilante success. And we'll I'll be able to write it up a little more concisely and more clearly for you guys to answer.
3: Well great. That about wraps up episode twenty seven. Thank you so much to Pierre for coming along. I hope you've enjoyed your time on the show. Oh, oh yeah, I had was really fun. So if you would like to be on the show like Pierre, uh You can email a clip of you
1: analyzing a bit of the series to alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Just remember, you need to have appropriate audio and recording equipment so you can sound as lovely as Piero did. So uh, you can also just submit content on the Alohomora website. Uh, And if we like what you post, we could invite you on, which is what I believe we did with Piero.
0: Sweet. And just to remind you guys where you can keep in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash door. You can leave us a voicemail at 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. Our main website, alohomora.mugglenet.com, and our main email account, alohomora at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. It's totally free. And leave us some comments and feedback, because we love to read that.
3: And thank you to everyone who has been sending in their photos of them with their host shirts that they've all been receiving from our store. Yes. Uh, we're so glad that everyone's been enjoying those, and it's been great to see all of you you know, wearing your shirts. Um, just as a reminder, the Alohomora store is accessible through our main Alohomora webpage, um, and you can go straight there at alohomora.spreadshirt.com. And it's got all of our host shirts with the obligatory genius moment, the Minerva is my home girl t-shirt, the Hug Me I'm a Hufflepuff t-shirt and the Is It Alive t-shirt. Um, and they're available in a whole wide range of colours um, and sizes and some of them are sweatshirts and normal t-shirts and I think vest tops and pretty much anything you can imagine. Um, and our general Alohomora shirts are up there as well. Um, we, are, we are hoping to have more products up soon, including things like iPhone cases and tote bags, um, and hopefully some new designs sometime soon as well. So make sure you do keep checking back for new merchandise. Yeah. And
1: while you're shopping, the, you can also <laughs> check out our uh, mobile app, which is now available in the UK on Android. Yay! For um, Finally! <laughs> One, how would you? Is it £1.29? one pound and 29? One pound
3: 29 pence. There you go.
1: <laughs> uh, it's uh, <laughs> also available in the US and the UK for iPhone and Android. Uh, don't forget, we're are we also available on Kindle and iPad now.
2: Holla, or what iPad. up?
1: <laughs> Kindle Fire, I'm assuming. Yeah, so. Definitely check that out. And you can have a whole host of informa- of new content, like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and much more. It's very exciting.
0: All right. Well, that will do it for us this week. Thanks again to Piera for joining us. I am Caleb Graves.
3: I'm Laura Riley, And I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 27 of Oh
0: Open the Dumbledore.
1: Batman